guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And I'm excited. We've got a very special episode for you. As always, we're going to talk about an American icon. That's right. Which, I, which I'm really excited for that. Uh, because I, what day is it, Chris? It is, as you are listening to this, it is Independence Day. Yes. We wanted to get an episode out to you guys because all the other podcasts are lazy and they're all <laughs> hanging out with their families and lighting off fireworks that they obtained illegally from the, the state next door, which is what everybody does when you live in a place like Minnesota. You, if you want to blow your hands off, you have to go to Wisconsin, <laughs> which is funny because I just had, I wanted to order some liquor. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to order some liquor and uh, it's 195 proof grain alcohol. Jesus. Which is, and I couldn't, I'm like, oh, I just like to ship it to Minnesota. Nope, illegal. <laughs> Guess where it's not illegal? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. So I sent it to your dad. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, and the my favorite part of that is I told him that. He's like, oh, okay, that's weird, but that's fine. And then I told him what it was. He goes, oh, okay. Well, I'm just going to dump it all out, save the good stuff, and just replace it with like some cheap vodka and give it to Chris. Well, if it doesn't make you immediately on fire, <laughs> then you when, know then, something's then you know. wrong. Yeah, I've, I've had 150 proof alcohol. This stuff just might must just taste like fire. I what think is it's it, 195? 195. So it's yeah. 90%, 92.5% yeah. well, proof. Is, that's like Everclear, I think. That's the name of the brand. So you've got oh, a hundred. This is Everclear? It's called Everclear. Yeah, I've had Everclear. Yeah, but you probably had 150 proof. No, no, no. Everclear is only 195. Okay. Well, I have not had it. It's terrible. I bet, I bet it is. It's I got it because I have an apple tree. Okay. I'm going to throw all the apples in a thing, put yep. the Everclear in, okay. and see if I can make some some situation happen with that. Anyway, so I've also been working on the the rally. Okay. So as everybody knows, I'm we've got the rally going on over crestproductions.com slash rally2019 if you have been living on the moon. <laughs> and uh, so I finally have been working on the map, which is, I really love maps. Maps are awesome. I, you know what's so funny? So you've been putting in a lot of work on this. I have. You know, here's, here's a funny thing is, um, this is one of the reasons why I'm doing this actually is the impetus of using an actual map Okay, is I remember when I gave Alex a, a, an actual physical map when we went on the, the trip out to California. Sure. And I was like, do you know how to read a map? He's like, well, yeah, I can just, read. I'm like, all right. So you have different things on the map. Like there's red triangles and black triangles. Okay. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. In between cities, there's little triangles. Yep. And then there's a black number and that's the distance in between that city. Now, none of this, just, I just realized none of that exists on the map I'm giving everybody. <laughs> but anyway, so I took an atlas apart and I put all the, the pages together and I was going to take a big, huge mural of the map with all the different pages. Okay, so you're going to physically like put it together and then take a picture of it. Yeah, and then I was going to draw the route on it. Sure. And it turns out that the Wisconsin scale is four miles per inch and a half. Okay. Which, and, the, and the Minnesota one is five. So the oh, the actual no. the actual squares that are on the map are not the same size. So I had to get it into Photoshop, mess around with it, giant you nightmare. Scale it. But actually, I've got everything working. I've got the maps laid out. I'm sorry, the routes laid out. I've got a little legend that's like, oh, park here. This is parking. This is um, a great spot for photos. Sure. I've got some other stuff. Um, no bathrooms. Okay. What so, about gas stations? Gas stations. I got. We we have to go drive it so I can find out where the good gas stations are. Because there, there's okay. So what makes a good gas station? Well, some of them Is have this a whole segment in itself. Well, some <laughs> gas stations have three octane levels. Right. Some also have three octane levels, but they're all 87. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's yeah. Except I have seen non-oxygenated 87. Yeah, as well. That's but that's the good for stuff. it's basically for your lawnmower, right? That's what I put in my car. Yeah. <laughs> you put 87 non-oxy in your car? I would love to. It's low compression. Well, why don't you? 
91 non-oxy would be better for your car. Why? It's low compression. Doesn't burn as well. It's yeah, but what are you running for timing? Stock timing. Okay, you're probably fine. Yeah, no, um, I, like I read about it. A lot of these guys with the early two two Ts, they they say only run eighty seven. Are those the guys that also say say that you're getting an extra twenty horsepower from different chokes <laughs> inside your ventures in your carburetor? Which you are. No, you're not. And a higher rev limit and a support muffler. Oh, so you're just revving it higher. Well, yeah, that's part of it. Okay, yeah, I'm sure it's. I'm sure everything's just fine. Um, so anyway, the rally's going great. Getting everything put together. You and I are going to have to go drive it. Yeah. Um, and get everything nailed down. I have. I've been making these little like. Uh, shortcuts that are gravel yeah and making them brown with little dots so you're gonna be able to see like <laughs> oh if you want to go this way there's gravel really really excited for it i really so enjoy did you have to manually like in photoshop draw lines i did an illustrator oh, yeah okay. I, yes but yes i did wow so i went through and click 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 yep. click click and then i made the curves where the roads are so i went through Ooh. and manually drew the route on everything <laughs> so which i love maps i love it it's 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 great I, here's the thing is obviously there's ways to do this on a phone Okay. But I really want people to get off their phone, okay. have fun with their co-driver who's going to have the map, and I think it's going to be a more enriching experience. Plus, when your phone stops working, you're not going to just be like, right, well, because time a lot to go of home. these routes don't have great cell service. They, or, or, or there's none. Yeah. For the okay. majority of the, the Wisconsin side, when you're off uh, the river, there isn't any. There's no service. At all. None. Okay. does not exist. And if it does, you don't have data. Well, we we better hope your cartography skills are accurate then. Well, it's not my cur- <laughs> it's the it's the what is it? What is the name of the company? Rand is, McNally. Rand McNally Atlas and Gazetteer. <laughs> there you go. It's it's their deal. So Okay. Um, so before we get to the history episode, sure. Um do you remember I showed you a show called Victory by Design. Yes. What was the guy's name? Elaine DeCadney. And Which Elaine DeCadney. Great name. Great name. He's an endurance racing guy along with a Formula One guy. Um, he had a show called The Renaissance Man that was on Velocity. I think Velocity is actually Motor Trend TV now. And okay. I, but I can't find any of the Renaissance Man stuff. But anyway, what this guy does is he goes and he drives old cool stuff and talks about it. Right. But he does it in a... And just... He's British, so he obviously sounds smarter than everybody anyway. But he, he knows... <laughs> what he's talking about he writes his own scripts so yeah you we sat down and watched one here at the studio for a while and it's interesting because it was all one take yeah and it's not like he has cue cards he's just rattling stuff off about just these talking cars. about the cars it's awesome. It's, it's awesome so victory by design you can find it on youtube but okay. he, it got me thinking about what makes obviously we're rehashing a little bit about what makes a car cool or brand but it's more about what makes something high quality and what what gives gravity to a brand when you think of it so when you okay. think of Alfa Romeo or Fiat or Chrysler or Ford or anything, what gives the brand weight as an enthusiast? Okay, I'm not talking about Mary Jane down the street that's driving her for Ford Focus stock with manual crank windows to go wait tables at the restaurant. Okay, she doesn't count, <laughs> right? Let's, let's not take, okay. take her into account. But what used to happen back in the day, and it and it was less, it's less of a sacrifice in, in modern times, but when you're talking about 20s and, the, and then 20s and the 30s, guys were really sacrificing. They were doing things like buying entire companies to get an engine, which is something that, uh, that was Aston episode, Martin did. Yeah. yeah, and I can't remember the name of the, the engine that they had, but it was La something. But the guy, he's like, I really like that engine. So we bought, because he wanted to win Le Mans. That's what he wanted to do. That's so right. So he bought the company that the had the engine car company for the engine for the engine and then okay. that's the engine that was then in those cars and then guys will go out and race these cars and these guys would die 
Okay, so yeah, racing wasn't uh, quite as safe as it is today. Not even close. And so everybody was making sacrifices. The, um, well, obviously the super rich guy that lives in Britain or whatever with he's got the gate next to his house that owns Aston Martin is uh, <laughs> what? What is the guy's name? That's who is this? The guy that basically saved Aston Martin. I can't. Oh, I can't think of his name right now. But. Uh, Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Anyway, so these guys make made huge amounts of sacrifices over the years. And every single one of those steps, whether it's a sacrifice at the racetrack or somebody's dead or it's, you know, someone has to buy a company or there's massive amounts of time and research and R&D and engineering, all of these things together, each model car stands on the shoulders of the one that comes before it, right? Okay. So if you look at like a, a 2000 to Mark IV GTI. Mm-hmm. The technology there is from the Mark III GTI, from the right. Mark II GTI, yeah. from the Mark I. Of- it's the evolution of, and that's what has consistently happened with every auto manufacturer over the years. Not, not all of them have like a huge racing pedigree, but some okay. of the really heavy brands do, like Mercedes, right? They've always been racing sure. way back in the day, whether it was at the Avis track or whatever. They've always been pushing the envelope of what was possible. And even F1 now, they are pushing the envelope. Yeah, they're in Formula One. Yeah. So here's the question. Are these electric cars, I'm not even talking about hybrid cars, are the electric cars still standing on the shoulders of everything that came before them? Hmm. So it's a good question because you're basically not building off any of the, I mean, suspension technology is still going to be there, but is it unique? Right. Right. I mean, there's no what. What's the sacrifice? Because to get to where we are with a combustion engine, mm-hmm. I'm, I, when it all comes down to it, that's what it comes down to, right? That's the heart of the car. Is the, is the motor a great chassis? Arguably, car- yes. What do you mean, arguably? There are some cars that don't have good engines, but they're still awesome cars. Like what? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out. Like what? Uh, okay. So. I will go with your argument okay, for the so sake of this. The, what do you mean? You, if you're going to argue for the sake of something, you better have a reason why I'm wrong. Well, no. The, the car, the engine is the heart of every driving experience. Okay. If it's if it's some anemic, wheezy, terrible motor, but it's all you got to take it in context. Okay. Like when we talk about like a JH and in, in a Rabbit GTI with a close ratio gearbox, you have to take that engine in context with what it's in. Right. Okay. But when you think of um, well, I'm trying to think of a, a, a great motor and a bad car like or a bad the motor. the old uh, Lincoln Continental with the suicide doors that open and no B-pillar. What engine's in that? I'm sure it's some V8, but it's that doesn't V8. matter with that car. So that isn't the but central point of that car. Or the DeLorean. Terrible car, but arguably iconic. Well, that's a terrible that car to begin terrible. with. But the reason that car isn't cool is because of how it drives. I'm talking about the driving experience. Okay. And you're I would, putting you're putting a lot of constraints on this. Well, yeah. Well, that's what we're talking about. Is the comp- when we're talking about the what's standing on the shoulders of the what came before. You're talking about. Uh, I'm talking about electric cars specifically. Okay. Okay. And what's the difference between an electric right. car? It, it is just the drivetrain. It's the drivetrain. Yes. Okay. And the technology that you know goes into keeping the car on the road is massively different. But with the engine being the heart of the car, you have all these developments over the course of you know for Mercedes, they were the first ones to develop a car. It's been the entire history of that company they've been developing this combustion engine to become into the best possible you know technology and power efficiency that it can possibly be and now we're taking all of that all the sacrifices that everybody's made the people that have died because you manufacturers don't just go race for fun i mean that's a part of it i'm sure they all love it but 
it's all to develop stuff for the cars that are, you know. Right. The old adage, you know, the old adage, race on Sunday, sell on Monday. That's right. And that's exactly what it is. And so these sacrifices that were made by, you know, drivers and teams and um, other individuals, engineers, in terms mm-hmm. of their time, because when you think about time, and right. this is getting kind of esoteric a little bit and philosophical, but when you think about time, your nice time here is finette, right? So the time we spend working, the time we spend on doing this podcast together, we're never going to get it back, right? So we're we're making okay. a sacrifice of our life to do this. Everything every, right now, as you're listening to this podcast, you're sacrificing your life to listen to this podcast. Okay. Everything you do is a sacrifice. So these guys that spent time engineering and coming up with the technology and the engines and and working at the factory, all of these people and the people that died and the people that owned the companies and developed and the marketing people, everything, it's all led to where we are today. So you're saying, if I can paraphrase, that by switching over to all these electric cars that aren't built upon that, that I guess, pedigree, yep. somehow that pedigree now is lost. It's not that pedigree is lost. Here's the question, though. Are we able to start over? Does it matter anymore? Are we able to start over with these new cars as a fresh start with like a rookie pedigree? Maybe. Are they ever going to be? No. I, it's all going to be, I feel like our drivetrains are all going to be, it'll be like one so here's the thing. motor manufacturer. Nobody's out driving around in a, in a Tacan with a leather helmet on with goggles, driving 10 tenths on tires that are 105 millimeters wide. I should hope not. <laughs> okay. I mean, there's just, there's no risk. There's no sacrifice. You know, look at how, I don't want to undermine how dangerous racing is. Okay. But it is nowhere near as dangerous as it used to be. You had, I remember I talked to, uh, who was, I was talking to Brian. It was a Brian Redman or I was talking to Dick Barber. And he said, every time I went out to race, I thought I wouldn't come back. I, I might die. And it's, wow. and these guys would, or is their friends that would die? Yeah. And it was happening all the time. And that's, I'm gl- obviously, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. No, right. I mean, we're all glad that racing is safe. But at the same time, the grit and courage that it took to do what people did back then, some of that's lost. It's not on display anymore. Sure. So that, that, that foundation cannot exist for these newer style cars. That foundation can never be. It can never exist. That is a time that has passed that we can't get back. It's a time, period of time in history. It's gone. Yeah. So in that regard, you're right. We can't have the pedigree going forward. Great. I wish I still had that clip of those electric cars. <laughs> I would play it right now so everybody could be super sad. All right. Before we get into our Independence Day special, why don't you tell us about our new sponsor? Yes. This is very exciting. We are launching a new sponsor for the month of July, and... This is Petrol Box. So just like everyone else out there that has a subscription service, my, my wife subscribes to Bark Box for our dog. Oh, okay. We get dog toys and everything. Yep. So this is And a, then there's like meat box and veggie box and clothes box and <laughs> yeah. lingerie box. No, and, this is a monthly subscription service made by automotive enthusiasts for automotive enthusiasts. So each month So it's actually good. It's very cool. So each month they give Carefully selected items such as tools, detailing supplies, some cool apparel. They have a bunch of novelty items, car gear, stickers, everything else, and they send it right to your doorstep. So 
you can subscribe for yourself because I certainly like it and will want one. Or they do make a really good gift. That's too, true. Chris. That's true. So what's really cool about these guys that no one else is doing is they give away a set of rotiform wheels to one lucky subscriber every single month. So that's one set of um, every month? Every month. Okay. That's <laughs> that's pretty serious. I know it is. So, yeah, if you subscribe, you're automatically entered to win a set of wheels every month. So... They've partnered with us to offer a discount for your first month's subscription. There are actually two levels of this box to choose from. You have the Petrol Box Basic, starts as low as $19.95 per month, so that's less than $20, while the Petrol Box Premium gets you a more like full box full of gear for $39.95 per month. You can check them out at petrolbox.com. Be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to receive $6 off your first month. And we actually got, we got one. a box here, our first box. And so I'm opening it here. And first of all, we have an awesome, uh, what is this, the Grip-On Wide Beam Pen Light that Nine, I'm blinding Chris with 900 right now. million lumens. This is awesome. So they do usually okay, give you, you don't like need a, a tool. <laughs> it doesn't need to strobe <laughs> in my face. Okay. We also got uh, some detailing supplies, some touchless ceramic spray, hydrophobic finish. That'll That's work awesome. great on your semi-shiny weird deck lid. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, we have a nice microfiber that we just used to clean up some spilt uh, <laughs> beer and Red Bull on our table. So that came in handy, as well as a cool T-shirt and some other stuff. So it is a really cool subscription box. Yeah, and they're, it's, a, it's a cool brand. It's it, they're, Actually, I love their Instagram. It's really funny. Oh, so you really? can follow, look them up on social media, even though Instagram's broken today. You can look them up, and they have all kinds of funny stuff that they post. I I, I steal stuff from them sometimes. They're posting <laughs> Anyway. So... Do yourself a favor, check them out. Petrolbox.com. And then use the code OVERCREST to get that discount. All right. All right. Now, our patriotic mystery history. By the spring of 1940, the whole of Europe was embroiled in war. The United States was maintaining its distance at this point, but the writing was on the wall. They yeah. could already see that things may escalate. Well, yeah, in the Atlantic Ocean, things were going poorly. There were merchant ships that were getting sunk by right. Germans. I mean, it was, I mean, Pearl Harbor was December 7th, 7th 1941. 1941. So this is still a year and a half before Pearl Harbor. Okay. So okay. with the U.S. fearing its involvement in the war basically being imminent, the call was put out for the military to be prepared. And in June of 1940, this led the U.S. Army to solicit bids from 135 different automakers for a new light reconnaissance vehicle. Now, Chris, up until this point, no such vehicle had really existed in the armed forces. Out of the 135 requests that the Army put out there, only three responded. They were Bantam, Willys, and Ford. Now, here's the one thing that's important to understand is that before Pearl Harbor, there was not a lot of positive sentiment sentiment in the United States to go to war. No. Okay, so absolutely they, not. The, the Americans did not go to war. They were fatigued. World War One had just happened, mm -hmm. you know, uh, 20 years earlier or whatever. And there was not a huge race to just go back to Europe. So you can understand there might have been a little yeah, trepidation there. that's why there, there was some reluctance. Yeah. Uh, you know, but still, out of 135 requests for this basically government contract, only these three responded and i found that really surprising and i don't even know bantam so I, i'll get to them in a minute but what you need to realize was what the army was asking for was seemingly impossible why so not only would these companies need to design and engineer a vehicle matching the military specs which were 
which were, they, I don't have them listed here, but basically they needed a four-wheel drive vehicle that could carry four or five troops and all their gear it needed to be, you know, powerful enough and fuel efficient enough and also rugged enough to do what it needed to do in combat. Right, right. right? So not only did they That seems to, like a reason. That doesn't seem outlandish. No, that part isn't. But they have to design, engineer a vehicle matching these specs. They would also need to supply a working prototype of this vehicle. Also seems reasonable. In 49 days. Completely unreasonable. <laughs> <laughs> that is not reasonable so at all. Basically a month and a half to design a vehicle from the bottom up and get a working prototype. Okay. So the Willys company actually asked for more time, but the army said no. They, okay. they refused. So oh, what? just because they, they... I think they just had a fire lit under their ass. They're they like, just we knew. need to they get knew. this project moving right now. I think there was probably... Well, we don't need to go into World War II history, but I mean, it was, it was getting pretty serious at yes, that time. Yes, it was. So let's take a moment to shed a little light on perhaps the least known of those three companies, the Bantam Car Company. So it was previously known as the American Austin Car Company, founded in 1929 in Butler, Pennsylvania. So their intention was to assemble and sell a version of the UK's Austin 7 here in the States, which they called the American Austin. <laughs> very creative you know, naming structure. Not very good marketing. Have you ever, I was trying to figure <laughs> out where I'd heard of Bantam before. That's a toy company. Bantam oh, really? Toys. They make toys. That's why I was trying to figure out. I didn't know. Maybe maybe it didn't work out, <laughs> and they decided they would just make stuffed animals well, instead. let me tell you a little bit about Bantam. So right. after some initial success, the Great Depression set in, and the sales for these cars fell to the point that they basically just ceased production. I imagine that's doors. kind of industry-wide. Exactly. If you didn't have liquidity and you didn't have some sort of foundation under you— even if you did, no one's buying your products. So you kind of just have to shut down your operations for a while. People are having trouble going to the cobbler to put new soles on their shoes, let alone buy a car. Exactly. So because of that, in 1934, the company filed for bankruptcy. Then in 1935, the company was reorganized under the name American Bantam. Remember, previously to this, they were the Austin Car Company. Right. Uh, production resumed then in 1937. However, in 1940, when the Army request came through, the Bantam Car Company was still only operating with, like, a skeleton crew. You know, they weren't ramping up huge production numbers. But... I just looked up a picture of one of their cars. It looks like a toy. <laughs> they are very small. They look like a super tiny Model T. Like a miniature yeah, Model T. a photo. Just weird looking. Dear God, they're small. I think those were those Austin 7s, though, out of the UK. Because remember, they were just basically importing and remanufacturing the Austin 7. That's why they were the American Austin Car Company. Right, right. Yeah, right. I'm looking at like a, an Austin Bantam Roadster. There you go. Cool name. <laughs> it, it's, it looks like a death, complete and utter death trap, yeah. to be honest. So they basically are a very small company still not huge on operation after the depression uh, but the project must have seemed like just the opportunity the company needed right but how would yeah, they government contract right hello that's <laughs> about as good as it gets exactly but how would they accomplish such a feat in such a short amount of time they don't have the resources where are these manufactured are they manufactured in texas pennsylvania okay pennsylvania all right yep so Enter Carl Probst. Despite having a decidedly German-sounding name, Probst was as American as apple pie and Budweiser at a ball game. <laughs> Did you like that? I do. I put that I like together. That. 
He was uh, born in Point Pleasant, West Virginia in October of 1883 to Charles and Eva Propes. He went on to study engineering at Ohio State University and graduated in 1906. He led a successful career as a freelance engineer and automotive designer and had a reputation for being able to get shit done. The Bantam like Car Company guy. contacted Propes and asked him to come on board for the project. They basically said, this is the guy we need. Probst declined. <laughs> he thought it was a completely unreasonable request. He, yes, didn't, he, don't, he didn't want to do it and not be able to do it and have it ruin yes. his reputation. Then, a couple days later, Popes received a letter addressed from the United States Army. It was an official, quote, request to begin work on the project in con- conjunction with the Bantam Car Company. So the Bantam Car Company, whoever, called up whoever and goes, hey, you guys, this guy doesn't want to do this. And we need him. We need him. That's... Yeah, and so he began work on July 17th, 1940, initially without even any payment. Wow. So I think the Army somehow was like, no, you need to do this. I wonder if they had a black car parked outside his house at all times. Either that or it was like, either you do this or your draft number's coming out. Oh. Right? Yeah, Maybe. Jesus. Uh, so it took Propes only two days to design, engineer, and lay out full plans for there's the Bantam no, prototype. I'm think, there's no way they would use being drafted as I don't know no but way how do they quote no way request him and all of a sudden he's like okay and he's not even getting paid let's imagine that it's 1940 okay, okay. And, and they're probably appealing to people's patriotism yeah and that's okay. probably what it's today we live in a day where Nike, I like that optimism you can't have shoes with a flag on it back then <laughs> everything had a flag on it I right. mean it was you know it was very well I guess maybe things didn't have a flag on them they were just it just was. You just supported your country. You did whatever right. you could, and you answered the call. So obviously somebody showed up, probably a very large man, and <laughs> suggested very gruffly that you support your country and show the patriotism, <laughs> sir, that we know that you have in your heart. Okay. I like that version better. So he began work on July 17th, and I'm going to reiterate this, Chris. It took Propes only two days to design engineer and lay out full plans for the bantam prototype known as the brc so this guy did get shit done he got shit done <laughs> quick the brc brc excuse me stood for bantam reconnaissance car bantam's bid was submitted on july 22nd complete with blueprints the beauty of this design was that much of the vehicle could be assembled from off-the-shelf automotive parts So the Bantam Car Company then went to work hand-building the prototype at their factory in Butler, Pennsylvania. Now, as an awesome show of the prototype's capabilities, the vehicle was then driven from Pennsylvania to Camp Hollibird, Maryland, where the Army would be reviewing designs. The vehicle met all of the Army's criteria except for one, engine torque. Okay, well, it's probably a British-designed engine, so that's not surprising. (laughs) So the Army was pleased with the design. However... The Army also knew that this small little outfit out of Pennsylvania would never be able to meet the production requirements to supply the entire U.S. armed forces. So I'm seeing pictures of this thing. It is very small. (laughs) It is very, very small. (laughs) The Bantam BRC? Yes. Yeah. It is very small. So the Army likes it, but they know that Bantam can't. They don't have the industrial capacity to keep up with the man of the war. So. The Army took the Bantam design and provided it to both Willys and Ford, encouraging them to build upon the design. So here's the... Did did they know? 
Did they know? Did they know that this dude was going to be able to design this car and that they were going to take the design and give it to someone else? Did they compensate Bantam for this I design? I hope so. I mean, come on. I found that very um, Un- surprising. It is uncouth. Is Quite uncouth indeed, sir. <laughs> so they encourage them to build upon the design. They say, we like this, but if you have ideas, then you know, feel free to basically modify it. The resulting Ford Pygmy and Willie's quad prototypes were, unsurprisingly, very similar to the Bantam BRC prototype. So fast forward, 1,500 of each of the model were then Can you, built. Hold on, hold on a second. What? Can you imagine getting that phone call at the Bantam office? We really, really like your design. We like that you did this. I mean, it doesn't have much torque, but maybe we can get a different engine. But anyway, we really, really like it. The uh-huh. wheel drive worked great. You, you, you drove it all the way there. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, you guys we, did. We worked really hard on this. You worked really, really hard. Is um, thank you. We're so happy to hear that. So what, what's what's next then? Okay, what I'm going to need you to do is just give me the blueprints for the design. Is that okay? Yep. No, we got that. That's all part of it. Okay. okay bye. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining. Let's just imagine the poor guy just hanging. I'm. Imagine him hanging the phone up so like, slowly. It's like the dial tone wait. comes. It's so slow that he's hanging up the phone that the dial tone is like. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's just, I mean, he has to walk his ass to the down freaking Pennsylvania Avenue to wherever his boss is and go, yeah, sorry. We have to give them everything we just designed for whatever it is. Yeah, we don't know. Okay. Okay. So they did still take 1,500 of their BRC prototypes along with 1,500 of Ford's version and the Willys version and built them and provided basically this fleet of them to the Army for extensive field testing. So who'd built these? So BRC built 1,500 of their model. Okay. Willys built 1,500 of their version of it. Okay. And Ford built 1,500 of their version. And they sent them all to the Army for extensive field testing. Okay. So... This is where I want to interject a story. When you hear about field testing of some new vehicle, I had a buddy who served in the Army, and he was tasked with basically just this, testing a new prototype to replace the Humvee. This was a few years ago. So he said they were basically told to go out in the desert and try to break these things. One story I remember was... I I would be good at this. Well, yeah, it sounded awesome. (laughs) So the story I remember is him and a couple guys taking one of these things at top speed. They did like 80 or so across, you know, the desert and trying to jump drainage ditches. Like they wanted to basically try to break the suspension off this thing. Right. And the story goes that one of the ditches was a bit steeper than they thought. And they basically plowed the truck into the far embankment. Oh, one of the guys hit his head on the roll bar and knocked out all of his front teeth. (laughs) But the truck kept going. <laughs> so He's got to see a dentist. The truck doesn't need to see no. a mechanic. So when I read about the Army testing these prototypes back in 1940, I can only imagine what those GIs were doing to these well, things. Have you seen the videos of these guys doing it? No. They're practically getting thrown out. They're driving. I mean, a, a Citroen T- 2CV would probably have no problem with its complex True. suspension. Over, True. But they're driving in this, uh, uh, this vehicle over a farm field, and the guys in it are pretending. <laughs> They're pretending that everything is okay, but, but in reality, just they're just thrown It's around. like they're all sitting on a 400-pound spring, just yeah. going, 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 just getting thrown at their hats are falling off and stuff, and they're, they look jolly. Uh, like. Yeah, well, I guess so. So, yeah, that's what I can picture. Regardless, after all this initial testing, the Army, you asked about the specs. The Army yeah. changed its weight specification from the initial 1,275 pounds like they wanted this thing light. There's no way that Bantam light. thing. Oh, it doesn't have to carry that much. It just no. needs to. Okay. So 
Yeah, they, that's the total weight. Well, they 12, have to transport them all to Europe. Yeah, so, so they wanted it light. But anyways, they changed the weight spec from 1275 to a maximum of 2,450 pounds, including all fluids. This is topped up, wet weight. Yep. Uh, upon this revision, Willie's Overland's chief engineer, Delma Barney Ruse... Which, okay. again, with these names, man. Yeah, I like that. Delmer Barney Ruse. He modified the design to use the Willys' heavy but powerful Go Devil engine. Wait, what? The Go Devil okay. was the nickname of the Willys' L134. It was an inline four-cylinder displacing 134 cubic inches or 2.1 liters. Okay? So it's a two-liter four-cylinder. Yep. It featured a very undersquare design with a three and an eighth inch which is a 79 millimeter bore and a four and three quarter or 111 millimeter stroke. Okay. So it's really bad for revs, but great for torque. Sure. The cylinder head was the L head design, aka a flat head with valves parallel to the cylinder. Initial power output was four was 60 horsepower at 4,000 RPM and 105 foot pounds of torque at 2,000 RPM with a 6.5 to one compression ratio. That's really actually not quite bad. That's, it's not bad. It's pretty good. I mean, the thing's like a, it's like a tractor engine. It has a ton of torque. So with this Do, increase... Wait, wait, wait. Why was it called the Go Devil engine? I don't know, you but could, that was the name. Okay. Well, I guess if you're going to name something, Go Devil is... The is, Wikipedia entry was like two lines long that just talked about the specs of the engine. And it just said, we have a Go Devil engine. Go That's Devil it. engine. <laughs> All right. The WL we'll just have to speculate. One, three, four. All right. So uh, with the increased power... The Willys design won the contract. So after they sent the 1,500 down there of all three of them and basically put them through their paces, when Willys decided they could put this new engine in, they said, all right, Army is giving Willys the contract. The Willys version was designed, was designated, excuse me, as the Model MB and was built at their plant in Toledo, Ohio. However, because the U.S. War Department required such a large number of vehicles in such a short time, Willys granted the U.S. government a non-exclusive license to allow another company to help manufacture vehicles using the Willys specs. So this is kind of what you talked about before. I love this idea of all these companies kind of coming together to support this war effort. Right. Do you think a defense contractor today would give away their plans to someone else? Not to a help chance. With not, volume? Not unless they're giving it to China who stole it. <laughs> yeah, that's not really giving. Not the same thing. So... The Army chose Ford as a second supplier, building vehicles to the Willys design specs. American Bantam, which was the original creator of the design, remember, spent the rest of the war building heavy-duty trailers for the Army. Which is kind of sad. Yeah, that's not... Yay, we built trailers. <laughs> Final production versions built by Willys Overland were designated Model MB, while those built by Ford were the Model GPW. The G standing for government vehicle, P designated an 80-inch wheelbase, which is a little longer, and the W was the Willys engine design, aka the Go Devil. So, which, by the way, I've been looking, I can't find anything. Yeah, see, there's. I nothing, didn't believe you. I'm like that name there. is so unique. I, no, I couldn't find anything. The Go Devil. So there were subtle differences between those two Ford and Willys models. Uh, the versions produced by Ford had a, every component, including bolt heads, marked with an F. They wanted to know this is the Ford-built version of it. <laughs> the cost per vehicle uh, trended upwards as the war continued on and price of you know materials and everything. But the contract initially was that Willys would make each of these for $648.74. 
and Ford would make each of these for $782.59 per unit. Okay, that seems reasonable. Yes, it does. When these vehicles were first introduced, soldiers were skeptical. After all, these are brand new, basically untested machines. As such, they referred to using an old World War I slang term that referred to new, uninitiated recruits. They called them Jeeps. Jeep, as it turned out, was basically the 1930s version of calling someone a noob. So if you got some new guys coming in the barracks from World War I, these are all the noobs. They're called Jeeps? They're called Jeeps. Ah! The new guys are all Jeeps. The Jeep thing you wouldn't understand. <laughs> yes. And applying the term Jeep to new machinery actually wasn't without precedent. In 1937, the Minneapolis Moline Company supplied tractors to the U.S. Army for World War I. The soldiers called them Jeeps. Do you know how the uh, how these things were purchased by the government, where they got the money from? They were bonds, right? They were war bonds. I got a little ad here, if I can just interject a little yeah, bit. go says, ahead. Um, a Jeep, this is what you buy with war bonds. This old picture, and it's got the picture of the Jeep on it. It says, a Jeep cost the Army $900. Seems like they're maybe exaggerating a little bit. Well, you know, there's processing. Soldiers call them 4x4s, but the official name is the reconnaissance car. Jeeps can maintain a speed of 45 miles per hour, transport a half ton of supplies, or six men. We need thousands of these practical little cars. You and 47 of your neighbors buying an $18.75% war bond can buy one Jeep. Wow. Do it today, for the Army needs thousands of them. Top the quota in your county and buy war bonds every payday. That's cool. So I think what they had community contests of who could you know raise the most money for war it's bonds. It's like your old school fundraisers, but on a huge community level. Right, exactly. So, yeah, they called them Jeeps because it's basically the term for a noob from World War I. Uh, as I was saying, there were tractors in World War One. One more, one more. Okay. This one just, <laughs> sorry, this is good. It just has a Jeep, and it just says, buy war bonds as if your life depended on it, because it does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, this, was, this was serious business. Oh, yeah. Just, I... It was very, very deadly serious, and I just want everybody to know that that's you know the sense of community. That's where it's coming from. Is yeah. if ever, if people didn't do this, that might be it. That might be it, and that's why that that's why Ford was like fine, and and this uh, Bantam was like okay because this was there was no other choice. Yeah, it was a greater calling basically. Right. So, um, do you want to hear some more uh, things that were called Jeeps before the Jeep? Yeah, Basically sure. Basically referred to as <laughs> yeah, like, like stupid noob things. I like noob. That sounds pretty good. I'm, every time I see a Jeep now, I'm just going to chuckle myself. Noob. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I was saying, in 1937, there's a Minneapolis Moline Tractor Company, which I don't think exists anymore. Okay. But I've heard cool of that. But it's from Minneapolis. Uh, they supplied tractors to the U.S. Army. Of course, they called them Jeeps. Uh, and a precursor to the Boeing B-17, the Flying Fortress, was also referred to as a Jeep. Oh, you're going up in that Jeep? Oh, yeah, good luck. exactly. However, unlike these previous uses, the term Jeep stuck around for the military reconnaissance vehicle, even after the Willys Model MB had proven itself. Why did so, it stick? Well, let's get into it. All right. Early in 1941, Willys had a publicity event in Washington, D.C., in order to demonstrate the vehicle's off-road capability, Willie's test driver, Irving Red Houseman, drove right up the front steps of the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> when asked by syndicated columnist Catherine Hiller for the Washington Daily News what that vehicle was, Houseman answered, it's a Jeep. Catherine Hiller's article was published nationally 
on February 19, 1941, and included a picture of the vehicle with the caption, Lawmakers take a ride, with Senator Meade of New York at the wheel and Representative Thomas of New Jersey sitting beside him. One of the Army's new scout cars, known as Jeeps, climbs up the Capitol steps in a demonstration yesterday. Soldiers in the rear seat for gunners were unperturbed. So is this the first time it was officially known versus colloquially known? Yes. So this is... And it was kind of by a mistake. Right. The reporter asked the guy, hey, what is this thing? He goes, it's a Jeep. And she thought, like, she basically took that as that's the official name of it. Right. And when that got published nationwide... He was being coy. Exactly. Okay. Jeeps went on to be used... Do you think the company was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) No, it's not a Jeep. It's a a 4x4. It's a whatever. My understanding is that term, the colloquialism Jeep, wasn't known outside of the army and military. You know what I mean? Like, we wouldn't know that Jeep meant noob. We would just be like, oh, that's a funny term. Right. So, because if you think of it, it com- take it completely out of the way that we know it today. The word Jeep, it is sounds a silly name, ridiculous. It's silly sounding. Yeah, it is. So it kind of makes sense. Jeeps went on to be used by every single branch of the U.S. military. Combined, Willys and Ford produced six hundred and forty thousand Jeeps during the war effort. Now, I didn't even know that Ford was making these. I didn't either. I thought it was just Willys. Willys and Ford. Jeeps were used for a wide variety of purposes in the war, including cable laying, sawmilling, firefighting, pumping trucks, field ambulances, tractors. Did these things have a power takeoff? Yes. They did. Okay. Yep. Uh, which is basically like a farm implement. Right. Yeah. Tractor. You could run all kinds of Belts different things. and stuff off them. Yeah. It was a special like add-on. You could buy it or not buy. There were kits that would go onto these. Sure. Um, and fun fact, I didn't get into it, but later the civilian version had a PTO option as well, because a lot of farmers would use these things sure. instead of tractors. Um, in addition to field ambulances, tractors, uh, they could also be fitted with suitable wheels and run on railway tracks as basically track like trains. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Pull cars with them. Uh, there was even an amphibious version of the Jeep, Chris, the model GPA or SEEP, which is, of course, a portmanteau of C and Jeep, the SEEP. Oh, very clever. What what happened to our guy that was trying to de- design exactly. amphibious cars? So the Seep was built in modest numbers by Ford, but wasn't a huge success, as it was, quote, neither a good off-road vehicle, nor was it good as a boat. And I have in little type, does this sound familiar to you, Chris? For our listeners, if you haven't heard, I don't remember what episode it is. It's called uh, Certified in Seahorses. We yes. talk about the history of amphibious vehicles. Check that one out. So... Jeeps were loaded into transport aircraft for rapid deployments via parachute. You've probably seen all these photos of these things literally being dropped from the air. Right. And there were even... That's where the weight requirement probably came from. Yes. They were even small enough to fit into the gliders used in the D-Day invasion. Now, do you remember... I don't remember anything about gliders. Okay. So what they would do going across the English Channel into Normandy is they would pull these gliders up that are basically like glider cargo planes. They're unpowered. How do they... What did they use to pull them up? Like a cargo plane. Oh, okay. So they, so they pull them up. But tow. the whole point is you have one plane pulling these up, and you don't have to have that many planes going over back and forth. You're just pulling up these gliders. You're, they pulling, glide. Up, you're pulling up the cheap planes. Yes. Because if those get blown up... It doesn't really matter. Well, that and they're disposable. That's so, yeah, that's what I just yes, said. Yes, <laughs> yes. So anyways, but they were made small enough so they can fit in these gliders. So literally you're being pulled up in your little cheap little glider thing going over the English Channel into Normandy. I'm imagining. Unloading your Jeep. I'm imagining 
like Peter, it's a very British name. So Peter is up in his glider. I knew a British Peter. <laughs> there you go. It's very British. I'm somehow in my head. I'm imagining when you turn the steering wheel, mm-hmm. it moves the airlines, so you don't have to actually fly the plane. You're just in the jeep the whole time. Oh, that'd be sweet. And then when you land, it just breaks away, and you right, drive you away drive like a hero in a jeep. And the guys on the back of the fifty you just. <laughs> I don't think did they put. I don't yes, think they, they put, did. Did they really? Thirty and fifty cals. Good grief! That's a lot of yes. gun for that thing. Yes, it is. Uh, General George C. Marshall, the U.S. Army Chief of Staff during World War II and later U.S. Secretary of State, described the Jeep as, quote, America's greatest contribution to modern warfare. Mm. Are we, when was that written? Probably before the atomic bomb. (laughs) (laughs) Noted World War II reporter Ernie Pyle. That's private pile? Private pile. Yes. Isn't he from Full Metal Jacket? Isn't that I private do. pile? I think you're right. Yes. But his actual name is Sir Lawrence something something. Well, this is World War II reporter Ernie Pyle. Okay. Once said, quote, it did everything. It went everywhere. Was as faithful as a dog, as strong as a mule, and as agile as a goat. It constantly carried twice what it was designed for and still kept going. So they were pretty durable then. Yes, they were. In fact, so they're... What, what, whole... what are the Germans and Japanese driving at this time and the Italians? What are they driving around in? Oh, they're driving around in trucks with the dipsticks that are screwed up. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> uh, I read this whole article. Commandeered fiats. They're yes, just... <laughs> exactly. The fiat uh, built. Uh, so I read this entire article about how a lot of these GIs were basically like getting attached to these things. Like they would literally be saving their lives with these Jeeps, like pulling them out of enemy territory and everything else. And there was one case where a Jeep was actually awarded a Purple Heart and shipped back home. Oh, that's cute. I thought it was too. Before we get too much further along in the story, though, I do want to take a moment to talk about Renline. As you guys all know by now, we've partnered with them to offer a great discount to you, our listeners. They're all extremely high-quality, beautifully machined products that they design not only for Porsche, but also for BMW, Mini, Audi, and others. And actually, they are putting on a 4th of July sale this week. You can save 15% off their grill screen kits with code GRILL04. That's through July That's clever. 8th. Yeah. So grill skin radiator protection kits, they're actually for the water-cooled guys, though. Okay. So you have a screen that covers up your expensive radiator and make sure that no road debris gets in there. Right. Uh, of course, we have our discount as well, Overcrest, to get 5% off your next order, along with free shipping on orders over $250. So check them out at renline.com. All right. I think... Now that I think, I think the Germans had the Kubelwagen. Yes, exactly. Which is basically a Volkswagen, Volkswagen thing. thing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay. I know. I was picturing that too. Um, so after the war, Jeep has an interesting history. So we'll start not well, during the war, I guess. In February of 1943, the Willys Overland Company filed a trademark application for the Jeep brand name. I think they knew even then like this was a thing. Willys' application was initially met with years of opposition, primarily from Phantom, which was the original creator of the design, but also from Minneapolis Moline, a.k.a. the tractors that were called Jeeps beforehand. The Federal Trade Commission initially ruled in favor of Bantam in May 1943 and continued to scold Willys Overland after the war for its advertising. 
the FTC even slapped the company with a formal cease and desist of any claims that it created or designed the Jeep. One thing, I'm just going to interrupt and interject one thing. So what horsepower do you think? The, so we know that this thing had 40 horsepower. and 60. Six, 60 horsepower yep. and 105 pound-feet of torque. Yes. Kubelwagen, go. 32. 23 and a half horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> so this could be the reason that they lost the war. Yeah. They just, they didn't have a Jeep. Didn't have a Jeep. So you're telling me that the FTC went after them for yeah. using the term Jeep. No, because they said, Willys, after the war, started marketing and saying, we designed the Jeep. This so it is wasn't the that they Jeep. were using the term Jeep. No. It, okay. They can use the term Jeep. They just couldn't say they designed it because. But, but didn't they? No, Bantam designed it. Oh, that's right. That's right? right. Okay, you're right. So Willys was only allowed to advertise its contribution to the Jeep's development. That seems fair. Yes. There was all these ads about patriotism, and this is the Jeep that saved the world. Now you can own one, too. Willys, however, proceeded to, preclude, to produce the first civilian Jeep, or CJ platform. That model was released in 1945 and simply copyrighted the Jeep name in 1946. So then trademark it, they just copyrighted it for use as a model name. Being the only company that continually produced Jeep vehicles after the war, Willys Overland was eventually granted the name Jeep as a registered trademark in June of 1950. Did they have to buy it from Bantam? Did they have to do or give them know. any money? I think at or... that point, just because they were the only ones using it, I don't know if there's an expiration on that sort of thing. There is actually. From one of our previous episodes, a listener texted me and all the copyright and trademark law. It's longer than like six years or four years, though. I think it's like 20 years. Yeah, well, we're talking 19, what are we talking, 1940s? 1950, they got the okay. rights. So yeah, 40 to 50 is 10. Never mind. I don't know. I don't know. It seems yeah. kind of shady to me. So that was Willie's. Willie's was later acquired by Kaiser Motors in 1953. Kaiser's renamed itself Kaiser Jeep in 1963. American Motor Corporation, good old AMC in turn, purchased Kaiser's money-losing Jeep operation in 1970. Why were, why were they losing money? They just had an old design. And I don't know. It's I don't, 30 years after World War II, and guys yeah. are like, hey. I don't think this people thing, wanted them. This thing sucks. <laughs> yep. Uh, then, in 1971, AMC spun off Jeep's commercial postal, and military vehicle lines into a separate subsidiary, AM General, which, of course, is the company that later developed the Humvee. I didn't include it here because it was often a weird tangent, but I'll mention it. There was a huge legal battle between Jeep and the Hummer, like not Humvee, AM General, but when they made the Hummer H2 and H3 that I have, yep. with the grill slats. It's seven-slat grill. That was apparently I'm looking at that right now on trademarked the... by Jeep. So they were trying to fight they were it like out. Ba broiled back and forth in this trademark. But anyways, that was AM General split off. Uh, Chrysler later bought out AMC in 1987, shortly after the Jeep CJ7 had been replaced with the AMC-designed Wrangler YJ. So what are the when I whenever I see Jeeps that are you know like the CJ7, CJ6. Five. Five? Yep. So it's odd numbers? Three, five, seven? Sure. Okay. Someone so, will, some Jeep guy will tell me, because I know there was like a... I didn't really know that it changed hands so many times. That's why I'm going through it. So what's the... I mean, can you do motor swaps? Or are they kind of the same? All, they, it's like nine uh, or it's like air cooled nine elevens. They're basically the they're same. They're all underneath. the same thing. So you can you can swap parts around hubs. That's axles. my understanding. Okay. Okay. Yes. I was just trying to figure out if they just kind of 
No. So what I'll get to after this, or let me just finish how many times they changed hands. Chrysler later bought out AMC in 1987, and that's when they had the Wrangler platform. But Chrysler subsequently subsequent Chrysler subsequently merged <laughs> with Daimler Benz in 1998 and folded into Daimler Chrysler. Then in 2014, Chrysler folded into Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, which currently owns the Jeep brand. Okay. However, in addition, Jeeps have been built under license by various manufacturers around the world, including Mahindra in India, EBRO in Spain, and several South American companies. They license the Jeep design and sell them under their own brand names. Well, that's a lot better than, I mean, than Americans trying to build a dealership with no foothold in the country. And True. Mitsubishi built more than 30 models in Japan between 1953 and 1998. Most were based on the CJ3B model of the original Willys Kayser design. Interestingly enough, though, despite all the changes in ownership, Jeep headquarters has always remained in Toledo, Ohio, since its inception. The city has always been proud of this heritage, where you'll find street named after the iconic vehicle. They have like Jeep Avenue and hey, where do you Willys. live? Oh, we're over on Jeep. I mean, what do you mean Jeep Street, Jeep Avenue, Jeep Parkway, yeah. Jeep, yes, Jeep. <laughs> Jeep Court? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in fact, the Jeep Wrangler and Jeep Cherokee are built-in facilities today, only a stone's throw from the original Willys Overland plant that they built. The World War II ones. In. So I can get with the Jeep Cherokee, the original inline six, one of my dream vehicles. And I think we the probably XJ. Yes. Is that what it's called? Is yes. XJ is the Cherokee? Yes. Okay. Well, I'll call it a Cherokee because that's that's just how I know it. But the the forestry service. Yes. That was the Jeep X-J. Cherokee is green with rubber floors and comes with a CB radio yeah, and sweet. crank windows. And they're awesome. Yeah. But they're all wasted. Oh, yeah. I would love to have one of those. There's steel wheels with little chrome rings on them. Great vehicle. I'd, I'd love to own one. Yeah. Plus so, that motor, that inline six that's in the Jeep Cherokee. It's a tractor motor. It goes it's forever. Forever. I Absolutely know. forever. My my friend in high school, like her, his sister had one of those early uh, XJs. And I remember it was something like the transfer case didn't work. So the their dad was like an old farmer growing up. And so he put it in two-wheel drive, went out there with his arc welder, and just welded it into two-wheel drive, <laughs> and it kept going forever. Like, that's a testament. I'd like to own one. So you'll like this quote. This is kind of out of left field, but I found it, and I had to share it. Enzo Ferrari was once quoted as saying that the Jeep is America's only real sports car. Oh, yeah, that's kind of hardcore, to be honest. Yeah, it is. So regardless of what you think of that, there's no denying that Jeep is an American icon that played an enormous role in shaping history. Far from the battlefields of World War II to the backwood highways and everything else around the heartland of the country, Jeep embodies the American spirit, and it's only fitting to honor it today on the 4th of July. I like it. Well, happy 4th of July to all of you guys. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a Patreon before you go. It's patreon.com slash overcrest. And kind of what I want to do is I want to talk about our newest Patreons. Travis, Kenny, Richard, Dan, Ryan, Brandon, Glenn, Nick, with a special thanks to Merrick, Stacy, and David, who are $25 a month uh, new subscribers. We've been we're having a lot of fun picking out the the prints for those guys, okay. working with them in you know, various sizes, whatever they want for whatever frame they happen to have at home. That you know, I've been working really hard with those guys to get them exactly what they need and, uh, and actually enjoying doing it. 
All right, guys. Hope you enjoy your Independence Day. Don't blow off your fingers or any other limbs. <laughs> um, we'll see you guys on Monday. Thank you. Thank you.